The epistle is from Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please rise for the gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 11th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says... I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. There was a time not long ago when hospitality manuals were very popular. In the 1800s, early 1900s, you could find all kinds of books published about how to be a good host. Less popular at that time were any information about how to be inhospitable, how to make people feel unwelcome, but that's the kind of stuff that is written today. You can go on Google. I did this this week. And I asked how to make people feel unwelcome 
in your home. Here are the top suggestions from Google. Turn down the thermostat. 60 degrees is not cold enough. 55 is probably best, so you have to wear a jacket. In fact, it's best if when you open the door to greet your guests, you're wearing a jacket and a hat and mittens and earmuffs. That's a great way to make them feel unwelcome. Hide the toilet paper. That's another good one. Leave your dirty clothes lying around, especially socks and underwear, on the couch, on the chair, so that when they have to sit down, they have to move your filthy laundry. That's how you make people feel unwelcome in your home. It's easy to do, isn't it? <laughs> it wouldn't be hard. Neither is good hospitality. It's not that hard to make somebody feel welcome in your home. You've all done this. You've all experienced it. You know what it's like. You have the coffee ready to go. There's no need to ask, is there any coffee ready? Or if it's no trouble to you, there's already a pot ready to be poured. You have comfy places to sit, clean, comfy places. And you bring welcome and attention. When the person walks in the door, you're giving them all of your attention. You're not thinking about other things you have to do. You're talking to them. You're wondering about them. You're having a conversation with them. That's how you make somebody feel welcome in your home. It's a stark difference between being hospitable and inhospitable, between making someone feel welcome and unwelcome. And that's the difference to pay attention to today. Jesus has come to make sin unwelcome in your hearts. He has come to make your hearts a place inhospitable for sin, the kind of place the devil doesn't want to stay, the kind of place he wants to leave immediately, the kind of place that makes him uncomfortable, and he knows that he doesn't belong. Notice how Jesus does this work in our gospel lesson. He shows up on the scene, and there's a man who is mute, because he has a demon, for some reason, somehow, that demon makes it so this fellow can't speak, and Jesus knows what the problem is. He knows that he's occupied by a demon, and so he sets to work casting out the demon. And it's almost trivial for Jesus to do that. There's very little remark about how he did that. And the demon was gone, and the mute man spoke. Notice, of course, that Jesus' opponents, those people who are around him watching, they all thought but the only way to make that happen is to be in league with the devil. They figured that demons were intractable. Once a heart has been decorated for the devil, there's no changing it. And so they thought in order for Jesus to cast out that demon, he must be consorting with demons. He must be on the side of the devil. But they are ignoring altogether what is going on here. Jesus didn't come to enter into some sort of agreement with the devil. He didn't have a compromise with that demon. He didn't shake hands with it. He didn't say, okay, you can be here two days out of the week and I'll be there five days out of the week. He didn't come negotiating. He didn't come offering compromises. The demon is gone. And the mute man is freed. That poor soul has been freed. This is an act of conquest. Jesus says to his opponents, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, can't cast out his own hordes, otherwise his house would be divided and he would fall. No, I am coming as a conqueror. I am coming as a conqueror to claim this place for myself. And so it is very much like that poor man's heart was a kingdom, a city with walls that had been overrun by an enemy. And so there are soldiers occupying all of the houses. They've destroyed everything. They're taking what doesn't belong to them. They're making a mess of everything, and they're making it a place that is comfortable for them. Those enemy soldiers occupying this kingdom, that's what that poor man's heart was like. 
And Jesus has come like a conquering king to reclaim what belongs to him. He drives them out. The power of a stronger man attacking someone. He doesn't leave anyone behind. He doesn't take prisoners. He doesn't make deals. There's no peace treaty here. It is conquest, complete and utter conquest. Jesus removes, like a king would, removes all of the banners and all of the accommodations, every last vestige of that foreign occupying military encampment. He takes all of that and it's gone. And he returns that town, that city, that kingdom to its original state. Not a trace. Not a trace of the enemy to be found. That is what Jesus does. He knows, of course, there can be no compromise with the devil. There can be no treaty with him. There can be no deal. There's no negotiating. It's all or nothing. And so he must be all gone. Jesus accomplishes it with a word. See how powerful he is and how merciful he is. With a word, he casts out that demon and the man is as good as new. And his heart, his heart has been redecorated. His heart has been turned into a place that is unwelcoming for the devil, inhospitable for the devil. Jesus hides the toilet paper and turns down the, the thermostat, and he won't talk to the devil. He doesn't care about what he's interested in. He won't give him any time. He makes him unwelcome. That is what Jesus has come to do. That's what he's done for you. Make no mistake, that's what he did for you in your baptism. He drove out the devil. You were not occupied by the devil, possessed by the devil in the same way that this man was, a bodily possession, but you were nonetheless a child of the devil when you entered into this world. And like your father, you were all set to do all kinds of sinful things, but Christ claimed you as his own. He drove out that occupying force. He drove out every last vestige of it. It seems too small, too trivial, taking that water and combining it with that simple word. But there it was. It was done. He pours into your heart the Holy Spirit. And he begins then to teach you how to live, not as one under foreign enemy occupation, but as a citizen of his kingdom. He teaches you what is good and how to desire it. He shows you what love looks like, and he gives it to you. He teaches you to love just like he loves. He makes promises to you of a future and a life in his kingdom, and he invites you to trust in him. And he will continue to do that all the days of your life until you are fully remade in his image. That's the work that he undertakes all your life long. It's a work begun in your baptism making you fit for the kingdom of God. It's a work begun that is already completed by faith, but you watch it take place over the course of your life as he drives out sin again and again, as he makes your heart more and more like his heart, more and more inhospitable for sin. That's what Jesus does. That's what he's promised to do, and he will certainly do it. But there's a warning to heed along the way. There's a warning about the devil. Now, I warn you about the devil all the time, and really, there's nothing else worth warning you about. All of the troubles and concerns of this life, they don't hold a candle to the trouble and concern of what the devil is up to, what he knows about the desires of your heart, what he knows about sin and how he can capture you, and his desire, his desire to have you back. He's a restless kind of evil. He doesn't just run away once and for all, but he comes back again and again, wondering 
if this time he'll be welcome in your heart, if this time the door is open, if this time it's cozy the way it used to be for him, if it's become more comfortable, if you'd like to have a chat with him, if you'd like to hear what he has to say, if you'd like to offer him a cup of coffee, if you'd like to offer him a place just for a moment in your heart, he comes back again and again knocking to see whether there's room. It's an awful thing. It's harrowing to reckon with that fact that the devil is so restless and tireless. So hear Jesus' warning. Do not, do not decorate your hearts for the devil. Don't make your heart a comfy, cozy place for him just like he remembers it. This is what happens when Christians choose sin. When you sin against your conscience, when your heart tells you, when your heart, informed by the Holy Spirit, reminds you, that's what Jesus died for. Don't do that again. That's the reason the wrath of God is being poured out on all of creation. Don't do that again. When your conscience tells you God is judging you, what would you say right now if God were seeing you, if God were looking at you? Isn't it true, in fact, he can see you when your heart sins anyways? When you choose against your conscience to do what is wicked and what is evil, you are decorating your heart for the devil. Here's how St. Peter puts it. If after you have escaped from the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are again entangled in them and overcome. That is, if again you become caught up in sin, if you become caught up again in silencing and numbing your conscience, he says the last state has become worse for you than the first. It would have been better for you never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to you. St. Peter says it's just like that proverb, the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. That's what it's like if a Christian chooses sin, chooses to decorate his heart for the devil, invites him back even just for a moment, opens the door and says, hey, you don't have to be my enemy. We can have some sort of an agreement here, maybe just for a time, maybe just for a moment. No. St. Peter says you'd be better off if you'd never heard the gospel in the first place. Don't think that you can remain a Christian and keep the Holy Spirit and enter into eternal life if you, against your conscience, choose sin and wickedness. If, without fear and shame, you just indulge the desires of your heart, if you make a deal with the devil, it is all over for you. Hear that warning well. Christ has come and conquered your hearts not to let you have your way and certainly not to give you back to the devil. Christ has come to conquer your hearts because he wants you to be saved and he wants you to live. The devil, with all of his enticements and all of his polite knocking at the door and asking just for a moment of your time, the devil is full of hatred for you. He wants to destroy you. There is nothing that he offers you which is good for you. It all leads to destruction. Hear it that way. Recognize when your heart is tickled and your desires are scratched. Recognize, recognize that it is all leading to death, which is not what Christ wants for you. He's come to save you from that. He's come to give you everlasting life. 
a heart that is pure and clean and holy, a heart that is glorious and untarnished, not a slave, not occupied by an enemy, but free, truly, a son of God. That's how we should think about our hearts, and that's the work that we should undertake in this life, hearing God's word and decorating our hearts for him. One way to think about it is to think about it in terms of the temple. You know all of those Old Testament books, those descriptions of the temple with all of its furniture and all of its decorations. It can be kind of uh, boring at times, and it's easy to get lost in all of the details, but there's something very important going on there when God describes how he wants his people to decorate the temple. It's unlike how other gods, false gods, might want their temples to be decorated, always for vanity, always to puff themselves up. The way that false gods want you to treat them or to regard them is distant from you, separate from you. You do things for them, you offer things to them, and maybe they'll consider helping you once in a while. That's not how God is. And so he instructs his people to decorate the temple as if it is his home. He tells them to paint all over the walls fruit and vegetables and flowers to remind them of the Garden of Eden, pomegranates and figs. He says, paint these things all over the place, carve them into the walls so that you can remember how I came and dwelt with you in the Garden of Eden. He has them put water all over the place in the temple to remind them of how they had been brought through the water of the Red Sea. Remember, God says, how you became mine when you were washed with that water, when you were baptized in that water. He has them decorate the most holy place with cherubim, angels flying around, to show them that God is not distant. He's not far away. But there he is, right in the midst of him. So close to them that his holy angels, which surround his throne, they are there in his presence as well. He says to them, decorate this temple so that you will know that my name dwells there. My name, the name by which you have been called, the name by which I swore to do every good thing for you, the name that I uttered when I rescued you from slavery and from death, the name that I used when I conquered all of your enemies, the name that I have given to you to call upon in every trouble, the name that which, when I hear it, when I hear it on your voice, I cannot help but answer and come and save you. That name, he says, that's the name that's in this place in this temple. He teaches them to decorate the temple with all about his goodness. All of the things that point to his righteousness, his love for them, his grace and his mercy. They are to decorate the temple so that they will never forget what he has already done for them and what he has promised to do for them. That's how you should decorate your hearts. You fill your ears constantly with God's word and promises. You take down everything that is false and idolatrous and you throw it out. And you put in its place beautiful pictures of what God has done for you. You remind yourself again and again and you surround yourself by people who will remind you again and again of God's great love for you, his surpassing love for you, which has never once failed. Never once has he handed you over to the devil. Never once has he let your life be in jeopardy. Never once has he failed to give you every good thing? Never once has he said, you're on your own. Instead, he has offered to do all that you need for this life and for eternity. 
You decorate your heart with those things. You fill your ears and your mind and your thoughts with those things. You have those things on your lips all the time. And you make your heart in that way a place where the devil cannot possibly be. He can't stand to come in the presence of Jesus' name. In fact, that, I think, is the reason why when Jesus shows up during his ministry, all of the demons come out of the woodwork. It's because they can't bear to be around him. Now they're all out of sorts. What is this? Who is this? The Son of God? Come into our time and in our place. They say to Jesus, no, our time is not yet. Don't, don't torture us yet. When Jesus is around, when his name is there, when his deeds and his righteousness and his love for you fill all of your thoughts and fill your heart, the devil has to flee. He cannot harm you. That's the glorious promise that Jesus has given to you. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are those who fill their ears and their hearts with God's love. Blessed are those who see in their Savior one who would do anything and has done everything to save you and to have you as his own. Walk in Christ, St. Paul says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk as children of light. That's who you are. That's who Christ made you to be. That's what his work in your hearts has done for you. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And watch as the devil flees terrified, for your Savior, your mighty conqueror, is here for you. To God alone be all glory now and forever. Amen.